I invite you to remain standing for our scripture reading. We'll be reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Let's read God's good word together. Soon afterwards, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their resources. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Is there any day more terrifying than the first day of middle school? (laughs) Do you remember your first day? I remember mine. It was, you know, I was barely out of fifth grade. We did six through eight at the school that I went to. And, you know, there were eighth graders there, and the guys looked like grown men. And I was, you know, I'm, I'm not that big now. I, w- I was smaller then. And even worse, my voice hadn't changed yet. And so going into the first day, I was super self-conscious about that. You know, how are pe- what are people going to think of? I'm, I'm just some kid that, why would anyone pay attention to me? And so I thought, you know how I can fix this? I will just make my voice change on my own. I don't have to wait. I'll just change it. And so I went to my first class. I had science. I remember sitting at the science table that had quite a few indentations that didn't look like they were the result of experiments. Somebody had been doing their art homework, carving into the, I don't, maybe. And uh, at least that's how I can charitably think about it. And, and there were four of us, and one of the people across from me asked what my name was. And so I told him, Brandon. <laughs> it went about that well. And uh, so he looked at me, got a frown on his face, and he said, is there something wrong with your voice? And at that moment, I just saw the complete end of my social life for the next three years. Like I was done before I even started. They're going to know that not only has his voice not changed yet, he's trying to act like it has, and the act is not convincing. If we need someone to ridicule, which unfortunately, a lot of us need someone to ridicule in middle school, at least we think we do. Like He is the one, and I just knew it. And, and so, as, as I have many times in the years since, I fell back on humor, and I said, yes, I have a vocal condition. And he said, oh my gosh, you do? And I said, no, I'm just kidding in my regular voice. And then he never brought it up again. Thank God. I mean, that was a narrow escape. I, that could have ruined me. But, you know, on that first day of school, we wanted, we're thinking about the impression we make, and in, particularly at that age, it can be terrifying. We want to be seen as someone who's worth knowing, who other people can respect, and, and at least if, if we're at least not presenting a target to anyone who's looking for one. But here's what's going on. You know, that, that desire is particularly acute at that age, but it doesn't go away. We still want people to think well of us, and, and it comes from a deep desire that we all have to be seen. We all want to be seen, to be known, And whenever we are seen, to be seen as worthy of knowing, worthy of respect and love as someone who has dignity. And sometimes we'll we'll really, we'll go out of our way to try to present ourselves in a way that people will accept us. We, We try to present ourselves favorably. Sometimes we even try to change who we are in order to be accepted by others. So people will like us or think that we're successful or think that we're worth knowing or, you know, whatever it is. All of these things, we want people to accept us, to think that, that we matter. And really deep down, we wonder, would anyone love me if they knew the real me? 
if they knew who I really am. We have this deep desire to be seen, to be known. And whenever we really see this, you can see it really clearly in small children. You know, whenever, whenever you just look at them, they light up. I mean, sometimes I, I, I see my daughters, I mean, sometimes they run right past me, but sometimes I just look at them and, and you can just see them smile. Like all I did was give them my attention and yet they know that they're seen and cared for because being truly seen and noticed makes us come alive. That's what we're going to talk about today. And if you stop listening after this point, I hope you won't. But, but if you do, what I hope that you walk away with is knowing that you are seen, that you are known, that you are accepted and loved by God just as you are, just as you are. So we're in week two of a sermon series on the Gospel of Luke. We're um, reading through the Gospel of Luke. If you follow along in our app and get the, the notifications, you can uh, read along with that as well. And, uh, and so we're going through and we're seeing Jesus and how he cares for outsiders and outcasts and even outlaws, particularly from the cross. And so last week what we talked about was the fact that Jesus lifts up the lowly. And we see this throughout the Gospel of Luke, really throughout all the Gospels, but Luke particularly lifts this up, this this quality of Jesus. And, and we see it really from the very beginning in chapter one, um, whenever Mary's talking with her cousin Elizabeth about what God is doing um, in her life and through her and the son that, that she would bear. And so this is what Mary says. Mary says, God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. And we see this isn't just something that Mary said, but it's something that takes place all throughout Jesus' gospel, the way that he lifts up the lowly. He healed the sick, he touched the untouchable, and he ate with sinners. In fact, Jesus ate a lot in the gospel of Luke. It seems like almost everything that happens happens around a table. But uh, in fact, this is, where, uh, this is what happens whenever uh, Jesus meets, after he calls his first disciples, they're, they're walking and they come upon this tax collector named Matthew and Jesus invites him to follow him. And, and Matthew's so excited that he throws a banquet for Jesus and, and invites these people over. And while he's there, uh, there were some Pharisees and scribes and they were complaining to Jesus' disciples, saying, why do you eat with and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Who did Jesus come for? Not people who have it all together, but people who are in need, people who need grace, people who need forgiveness. And, uh, and what Jesus doesn't mention, sometimes he just kind of plants these seeds and lets them kind of grow over time. By the way, like, everyone needs that grace. Everyone needs that forgiveness. Everyone is sick and needs a physician. And that's who he came for, all of the people who need him not just for the people who have it all together and present like good religious people, everyone. And what Pastor Mark said last week, and I love the way he said it, he said, there's nothing to about you. You are just right for whatever God calls you to do. There's nothing, you're not too old or too young or too inexperienced or too overqualified or anything in between. And so what he challenged us to do is to pay attention and say yes to God's call, no matter your age and stage in life. And what we saw in the Gospel of Luke is that uh, John the Baptist's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were, they were too old, and yet God used them. And Mary was a young girl, and she was too young to do anything of consequence, and yet God used her. And, and this is still what, uh, what Paul taught to his, his, um, his mentee, Timothy. He said, Let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct, in love and faith and purity. Do not neglect the gift that is in you. And whenever we think we're too anything to do the things that God has called us to, 
We're neglecting the gifts that God has given us for that task. Whenever we think, oh, I couldn't do that. I'm not qualified. Oh, I couldn't do that. I'm, I'm too old. It's somebody else's turn. Oh, I'm, I'm too young. I don't, how would I even know how to do that? We're not too anything. God has given us what we need to say yes and to do those things. And so what Pastor Mark told us, if, you're, if you've been poor, if you've been rich, if you've been rejected or dejected, sick or humiliated, God wants to use you to lift up the lowly, to lift you up and then use you to lift up others as well. Because God sees all the people as they are and welcomes them and accepts them. God sees the outcast. And that's what we're going to look at today. We see this at another meal. You know, Jesus kind of bounces from meal to meal. Apparently a lot of people fed him. That's great. I wish he would teach me that trick, how to get more people to feed you. But, uh, but while he was out teaching and healing in Galilee, he was invited to a dinner party at the home of a Pharisee. This is how Luke puts it. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And uh, back in those days, don't tell Leonardo da Vinci that he didn't quite uh, depict it correctly, but uh, they didn't sit at chairs at tables. Tables were low, and they would recline and have like a, a cushion that they would lean on. And so uh, anyway, maybe not. Uh, also, having everyone on one side of the table. Anyway, we're not talking about the Last Supper. But, uh, but, but so he went to this dinner party. He, he took his place and was at the table. And one of the things that's different about the way that dinner parties like that would function in those days that I don't think, I've never seen this happen these days, but at dinner parties, poor neighbors could come, and after the guests had been served, they could eat what was left. And so this served kind of a social function. You know, anyone who was hungry, um, they were blessed. You didn't have a bunch of food going to waste, and, uh, you know, they didn't have refrigerators to put them in afterward, uh, you know, to keep leftovers. And then the, the people who, who, had, who were well-to-do had an opportunity to serve others as well. And so this really um, was helpful. And so having people, you know, around who weren't necessarily invited to the meal as guests uh, wasn't particularly unusual. And that was the case at this particular meal. There, there were people who were around, and one particular person came in, and uh, this is how Luke describes it. He says, a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating, that Jesus was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. And she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. And so this was something that you might do for someone. Um, if you were hosting them, you would, you know, everyone is walking around and wearing sandals, and so you might offer them um, a bowl, um, a towel and a bowl with water so they can wash their feet. If you really want to honor someone, if you're um, hosting someone that you want to honor, you might even wash their feet yourself. That's why it's such a big deal whenever Jesus washes his disciples' feet. He's the, the person who is to be honored and yet chooses to wash their feet. And, and so all that's going on, and basically that's what this woman is doing, is, is she's uh, washing his feet with her tears. Now, we don't know wh- why she's doing that. We don't know what happened. Apparently, they had some kind of, he, she had some kind of experience with Jesus beforehand where uh, she was either healed or forgiven of something significant, and, and it, her gratitude is so great that she comes to him and just can't stop crying and actually just has enough tears to wash his feet with them. But, but the only thing we really know about her from this story is that she's a sinner. That's the only uh, detail that Luke gives us, and that's, that's all that we see is just that this person, what, whatever she's done, we don't know. And uh, apparently Luke doesn't think it's uh, significant enough or, or uh, relevant enough for us to know exactly what. But, uh, but that's, that's all that anyone sees. They, they know her reputation from being around town and, and just see her as, you know, just someone who's a sinner. Probably not worth inviting. She just kind of wandered in 
and uh, now is doing something strange at Jesus' feet. And this is, uh, this is what happens next. When the Pharisee who had invited them, Simon, saw it, he said to himself, if this man, Jesus, were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. So whenever he looks at her, that's all that, she see, that's all that he sees, just a woman who's a sinner. All he sees is a reputation. And he kind of writes her off. And uh, Jesus recognizes that this is happening. He, he essentially reads Simon's thoughts. So note to self, like, don't think bad things about other people in front of Jesus because he'll know, right? And, uh, and so he responds. And he's like, Simon, I have something to tell you. And, you know, I think if uh, Jesus says that to me, like, probably, hopefully alarm bells start going off. Like, okay, what did I just step in? And uh, apparently that was not the case for Simon. But he says, look, there, there are two people. They're both in debt. They're both debtors. One of them owes 50 denarii. Fifth, uh, denarius was about one day's uh, worth, uh, wage for one day's labor. And so, you know, almost two months worth of work. And another owes 500. And so, you know, pushing almost a year and a half day's work. And the, the person to whom they owe the debt forgives them. Which one loves, loves him more? And, uh, you know, Simon can do the math. He's like, okay, 550. Alligator goes toward the bigger number. And so the person to whom much is forgiven, like the person to who, who owed more. And Jesus says, yes, that is exactly right. And, uh, and this is how he continues. He says, he, then he turns to the woman and said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, which was also a common way to welcome guests. But from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil and other act of hospitality, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Basically, yeah, um, she may be a sinner, but look, she is the one who is offering hospitality. She is the one who is grateful. She is the one who is showing great love to Jesus. And what is the religious leader whose sin supposedly is small doing? He's just judging. He's just looking down on someone who he thinks is a sinner. And so the, the tables are totally turned. This, this woman who seems like she's, you know, just someone who should be written off, not someone you want to, to associate with, is the one who's actually blessing Jesus and being lifted up by him. Because Jesus saw the woman for who she was and not just for her reputation. He didn't just see her as a sinner. He saw her as someone, as someone who mattered. This is how Adam Hamilton puts it. He says, Simon saw a sinner. Jesus saw a woman in pain, broken, ashamed. Jesus saw someone who needed grace, not judgment. Jesus saw a dearly loved daughter of God. And whenever Jesus looks at us, that's what he sees, not a sinner, not the face that we try to put forward so people will like us, not the voice that we try to speak out of so people will think that we're older than we actually are. Jesus sees us as we are, as dearly loved children of God. Warts and all, he sees us and knows us and loves us. And that's the example that he sets for us too. That's the way that he invites us to see other people. And yet how often do we do that? How often, whenever we see someone else who may be easy to look down on or maybe we're feeling insecure, how often in that situation is our first reaction to judge, to look down on them, to think, oh, at least I'm not like that, right? I can feel better about myself because at least I'm not in their shoes, 
Too often we do that. I mean, even us good church people. Yet that's not what Jesus does. That's not the example he sets for us. Jesus sees, forgives, and empowers outcasts. He sees the people that society has written off, and he lifts them up, and he blesses them. What he said to the woman was, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Jesus saw her. And that's not just something, that's not just a one-off. One of the things that, one of the groups of people that Jesus saw frequently was women. Saw them and lifted them up. And, uh, and we don't always talk about them as much. Um, but one of the things that happens throughout Luke is that he tells more stories about women than any other gospel. And, and so as Jesus was traveling, it wasn't just the 12 male disciples that went with him, but it was actually women traveled with him as well and followed him. This is how Luke describes it. We just read this. Soon afterwards, Jesus went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. And so there were people who had experienced his grace, who had experienced his forgiveness and his power, and they had chosen to follow him as well, women who had done this. And, and you know, that's, uh, that's clearly in the text, but I don't know about you. That's something I, I've read a lot and I don't think a lot about. You know, whenever I think about Jesus and his followers, I see 12 men and that's it. And unfortunately, that's been the case through a lot of church history. The church too often ignores Jesus' female followers. And yet Luke continually draws attention to them. He continually reminds us that it was men and women who followed Jesus. And so these are the women that that Luke names. He says Mary called Magdalene, Mary Magdalene named for, um, referred to because of the city that she was from, Magdala, which is uh, actually really well-preserved. You can visit it today. And uh, it's right on the Sea of Galilee, from whom seven demons had gone out. And so she'd experienced great, great, not forgiveness, but healing from Jesus. And and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa. And so if you remember, Herod was the, basically kind of the puppet king who worked for Rome and um, was the governor of the area. His, His steward, uh, had a wife named Joanna, and apparently this was a person of great influence and power. And then there was also Susanna, and you know what we know about Susanna? Nothing. She followed Jesus, apparently, in, in Luke chapter 8. That's all that we know. But apparently she was important enough, she was well-known enough, that Luke thought it was important to mention her name, that the people that Luke was writing to would have known who Susanna was. And so he, he mentions her in, in this text. And uh, not only that, but, but there are many others who provided for them out of their resources. And, you know, for a long time, I I didn't realize this. I had to go to school to learn this. But women finance Jesus' ministry. So as he was traveling... Jesus and his disciples had to eat. They needed places to stay. Uh, whenever they were traveling, they would have had to pay the tolls, the Roman taxes, in order to travel on Roman roads. And, and so that money had to come from somewhere. And it was these women, followers of Jesus, who made that possible. And throughout, from the very beginning, women have made contributions, have been a part of what Jesus was doing. And yet throughout history, the church has too often denied and neglected the calling and gifts of women. Not because Jesus said to do that, but because that's the culture that they were in. In fact, as I was researching the sermon, I, I, I was reading all of these uh, commentaries by men talking about how Luke talks about women more than any other. I thought, huh, I should actually like read from like a woman and get her perspective on, on this gospel that lifts up women. So I had to you know, buy a new one because they're somewhat hard to find, unfortunately. There, there's still things that we need to work on today. But, but I'm thankful for the work of Dr. Sharon Ring. She's the one who, uh, who taught me about the, what, uh, what dinner parties in the first century looked like. But uh, she says, women's eventual marginalization in the leadership of the church seems to reflect the customs and social world of the emerging Christian communities rather than exclusionary policy of Jesus. 
Now, that's kind of a mouthful. There are a lot of big words in there. But basically, the, the exclusion of women by the church later on was not a result of what Jesus did, but a result of what, what they chose to do. Because we see throughout his ministry, Jesus lifting up women and empowering them. And we, uh, even in the very early in church history, there were um, women who were leaders. And, and we haven't gotten it right. We've got a long way to go, but we thankfully have made progress. And I'm thankful to be in a denomination that does recognize and, and celebrate the gifts of women. The, in the 18th and 19th century, in the Methodist movement, there were women who were licensed to preach and, and ordain. That wasn't necessarily the norm. And in 1956, it became um, the formal process that women could be fully ordained in the Methodist church. And so uh, that's been, what, 60... 67-ish years, and, uh, and I'm thankful many of my colleagues are, are just such a blessing to me and the churches they serve and do such amazing work. I also know that there are challenges they face that I don't face, and, and so there's work still to be done. But I'm thankful particularly for uh, the Reverend Dr. Jennifer Long. Um, that's, so that's the back of my head and uh, the back of Courtney's head, and, and Jennifer or, uh, officiated our wedding. She was the campus minister at, at Oklahoma City University whenever we were there, and uh, she was the one who really helped me as I was uh, discerning God's call to ministry. She was the one who helped me figure out what that meant for me and, and how to follow that. And uh, she's continued to be a mentor for me. Courtney and I met at OCU, and so it was natural to ask her to officiate our marriage. And, um, and 12 years later, we still have the, the privilege of knowing Jennifer and doing ministry with her. And we even had a, a meeting recently in that same place, McFarland and Norman, my home church. And uh, we were both there. And so we took a picture to, uh, to celebrate. Courtney, fortunately for her, got out of that meeting, but, uh, so she did not get to make it in the picture. But uh, Jennifer continues to be a mentor to me, and she's made such a difference in my life, as have so many other pastors in ministry. And so I'm so thankful that the church recognizes that and celebrates that. And, you know, depending on what tradition you grew up in, that might seem like a new thing that, that women can be in leadership in church. That women actually held leadership positions in the early church as deacons and, and even as apostles. And so it's, it's a little bit difficult to kind of trace lines from, from those days to here. Um, leadership structures were not as formal in the early church. And, you know, if you can imagine working at a startup, you know, it's not really so much about position as the work's just got to get done. And so we're not real worried about job titles. But, uh, but this is how Paul describes it in Romans 16, some of the women who are leaders in the church. Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Sencrie. And a uh, deacon is still um, an you can still be ordained as a deacon in the United Methodist Church and in other traditions as well. If you know the Reverend Nancy Hamilton, she's actually in Building C right now, uh, serving with children, but she uh, works for the whole state, um, the United Methodist Church, and she does great work. She's an ordained deacon in our church. And uh, so is Phoebe, and, uh, and someone who has been a benefactor of many, and of Paul himself as well. Paul also writes, Greet Prisca and Aquila, who work with me in Christ Jesus. Now, Prisca is sometimes translated Priscilla, if you've heard of Priscilla and Aquila, um, but, but they were a couple who were missionaries. Some, some people regard them as pastors. Again, it's a little difficult, but Paul recognizes them as people who are co-workers of his, who, who are his equals. It's not, Greet Aquila, my co-worker, and also his wife, uh, or also his wife Prisca, right? It's both of them. They're both co-workers. And so he recognizes her leadership gifts as well. He also says, greet Andronicus and Junia. Junia, um, a woman's name, my relatives who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. And what textual scholars will say as they read that, if you look at what it means, what the phrase prominent among the apostles means, is, is that they, they were apostles who were prominent, people who, who were lifted up and highly regarded as apostles. And, and so Junia was a, an apostle 
apostle herself. And, uh, but most of us think, you know, that, how does that? Women can't be apostles. Well, I don't I mean, I don't know what to tell you other than the Bible says otherwise, right? But, but, and so the, the gifts of women were honored and lifted up in, early in church history. We haven't always gotten it right, but Jesus did. And, and so we do too. Whenever we're following Jesus faithfully, we affirm, we honor, and we lift up women. And just to, to women who are here, you don't need a man to tell you this, but I'm also the one preaching, so I'm what you got. <laughs> but you are not less than anyone. God created all of us in the image of God, male and female. God created them, it says in Genesis chapter 1. You are seen, you are loved, and you are on, and you are just as gifted. Your calling is just as high as anyone else's. So don't let anyone tell you otherwise, even if they're trying to quote the Bible to tell you to step down. That's, that's not what Jesus says. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus sees women, honors women, and affirms their calling and sends them out to do his great work. We're all in this together. No one's greater than anyone else. Jesus sees all of us. And that's exactly what we need. So after that, there was another dinner party. It's like, man, this guy just gets invited to dinner left and right. There's another dinner party. This time it was hosted by a woman named Martha. And, and uh, Martha does all of the work getting ready. And her sister's there too. What does her sister do? She sits and listens. She does not help at all. This is what Luke says. Now, as the disciples went on their way with Jesus, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. Now, that seems like we see that kind of as like laziness, right? I mean, she's sitting there and listening. What, What actually was happening, that phrase, sitting at someone's feet, that was what a disciple did with their rabbi. They would sit, if you're a disciple, you sit at your rabbi's feet and listen to their teaching. You receive their teaching. So what what Mary was doing by sitting at Jesus' feet, she she was acting as a disciple. She was doing what disciples do. And in that culture, that that was really, for her to be allowed to do that was a significant thing because women weren't allowed in that culture to be disciples. They they weren't allowed to follow rabbis. That was a, a role reserved for men. And yet Jesus welcomed her. And not only that, but whenever Martha walks in, and you can feel for her, right? I mean, all of those people I'm pretty sure wanted to eat And so she was in there working her tail off, trying to make sure that it could happen by herself. But eventually, you know, uh, I can imagine walking by the doorway and looking in and and seeing your sister and like, huh, listening to Jesus. That looks nice. I wish I could do that. And so finally she she goes in and says something. Jesus, look, I'm I'm busting my tail, the Oklahoma translation. I'm busting my tail in here. and, And she's just sitting there listening. Won't you do something? Tell her to come help me. And what does Jesus say? Like, no, you're distracted by many things. Mary has chosen the thing that is necessary, and it won't be taken from her. He says she has chosen rightly. She's choosing to sit and listen to Jesus whenever she has the opportunity. And Martha, she does all the right things. I mean, she's fulfilling what a good host would do, what what her role was in that culture, but at the wrong time. And you know what happens when you do the right thing at the wrong time? You do the wrong thing. Has that ever happened to you? Like, I know it's important for me. I need to fulfill my professional obligations. I need to respond to people's emails. And if I do that while I'm sitting at the dinner table with my family, I'm doing the wrong thing. That's not what's necessary. Emails can wait. Only one person can be Courtney's husband. Only one person can be Elsie and Cece's dad. And so one thing is necessary, the right thing at the right time. And what... what 
what Jesus says, and this is the way that New Testament scholar Amy Jill Levine puts it, listening to Jesus precedes service. Listening to him is more important than serving. They're both important, but one comes first. Because if we don't listen to him, how do we know what we're supposed to do? Right? I mean, how do you follow instructions if you haven't received instructions? I mean, I know a lot of people wing it. I'm more of a like read the instructions first kind of guy. I know not everyone's wired that way. But we need to hear from Jesus so that we know how to serve. Because we need both of those things. We need prayer and we also need service. We need being, just being in God's presence. And we also need to do. We need to love God and to love people. Both of those things are necessary. And I love the way that Eddie Fox put it. He's an evangelist for a long time. And, and he was talking about acts of piety and acts of mercy. That's the way we talk about loving God and loving neighbors. And he said, which one, which one is, you know, which one's more important? Well, which one did you do last? It's like inhaling and exhaling. Whichever one you did last, you need to do the opposite. And so they're both necessary, but there's an order. There's an order. And, and we need to sit at Jesus' feet and to hear him so that we can know what he's calling us to do. Whenever he responds to Martha, whenever he tells her that Mary has chosen rightly, it's not a condemnation. It's actually an invitation to her so that she can receive something better, so that she can receive what Jesus is giving to Mary as well. I mean, I think he could probably figure out dinner. He fed 5,000 people, right? And he can figure out 15. And so he invites her to be a part of that because we all need time with Jesus to know who we really are. Because all of that stuff that we try to pick up, all the things that we pick up to try to project to other people to make sure that we demonstrate that we're a person who's worth knowing and, and is successful and all of, you know, whatever it is, loving, whatever image you're trying to project, all that stuff, we start to believe that stuff. And we forget who we really are. We need Jesus to help us to remember and to know. I love the way Rowan Williams puts it. He says, we need to retain the ability to say to God, tell me who I am, because I'm not going to settle with what everyone else is saying, is telling me. I'm not even going to settle with what I am telling me. I need to hear it from God, the God who tells me. We need to know from God who we truly are so that we can become the people we were created to be. Really, the spiritual life isn't about becoming someone different. Following Jesus isn't about becoming someone that you're not currently. It's about becoming more truly who you really are and and not getting rid of parts of yourself that you don't like or that you think God doesn't like. It's about stripping away the the things that we kind of put on ourselves, the masks that we put on to try to project certain things. It's getting rid of those things so that we can be more truly who we are. The way that the mystic teachers of the church talk about it is getting rid of the false self, stripping away the false self so that the true self, the person that God created to be, can emerge and be fully alive, knowing that we are seen and spending time with Jesus, seeing ourselves as he sees us enables us to do that. Being seen by Jesus means we can be fully who we are created to be. I love the way that, that Isaiah puts it. He says, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Jesus calls every single one of us by name, not as the people that we should be, not as the people that we wish we were, not even as the people that we try to tell everyone else in ourselves that we are, but the people we actually are, the people that God created, because God sees us and knows us, our flaws, our sins, everything about us, and loves us, looks at us and sees a dearly loved child of God. So whenever you look at yourself, 
whenever you look in the mirror, who do you see? You see someone who's flawed, not worth knowing. Voice hasn't even changed yet. You see someone who's, who's successful and has it all together and do you really believe all the stuff that you try to get other people to believe about you? Here's who Jesus sees. Someone who is unequivocally worth knowing, who is unequivocally loved beyond measure. That's how he invites us to see ourselves. And whenever we see ourselves that way, then we can see others in that way as well. And we can help them to know that they don't have to be anyone else than who God created them to be. Because you are seen and loved by Jesus. So here are a few ways I want to invite you to live that out this week with me. First, just start by praying, by asking whenever I look in the mirror, Jesus, help me to see each person I encounter as you do, including me, including myself. Help me to see others as you see them and to treat them accordingly. Not like Simon saw the woman who was sinful, but as Jesus saw her and as Jesus sees us. And then think about, think about the, the spheres that you see yourself in, the, you know, whether that's work or your house or, or your social places, the ball field, wherever you spend your time, and reflect on how women are treated in those spheres. Are they lifted up? Do people talk about them in ways that uh, they would stop if a woman walked up? Do they have opportunities for advancement? Do they have the same opportunities that men have? And whenever you see inequalities, stand up. And whenever you see opportunities, celebrate and lift up women. Women, because that's what Jesus does. He lifts up women. He lifts up all people. Men, rich people, poor people, outsiders, outcasts, outlaws. He sees us, and he loves us as we are, and he invites us to do the same. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you that you see us as we are exactly as we are. And you love us anyway. And in fact, you love us because of that. So God, I pray that you would help us to see ourselves in the same way, that you would help us to see our neighbors in the same way so that we can love them as you do, so they can know that they are loved beyond measure. We thank you for Jesus in the way that he loved us in that exact way. And we thank you that he taught us even how to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.